0: Part 8 of Paul and Virginia This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alice Christophe Paul and Virginia by Bernard de Saint-Pierre Part 8 Paul But do you think that the women of Europe are false, as they are represented in the comedies and books which you have lent me? The old man Women are false in those countries where men are tyrants. Violence always engenders a disposition to deceive. Paul In what way can men tyrannise over women? The old man. In giving them in marriage without consulting their inclinations. In uniting a young girl to an old man, or a woman of sensibility to a frigid and indifferent husband. Paul why not join together those who are suited to each other, the young to the young, and lovers to those they love? THE OLD MAN Because few young men in France have property enough to support them when they are married, and cannot acquire it till the greater part of their life is past. While young, they seduce the wives of others, and when they are old, they cannot secure their affections of their own. At first they themselves are deceivers, and afterwards they are deceived in their turn. This is one of the reactions of that eternal justice by which the world is governed. An excess on the side is sure to be balanced by one on the other. Thus the greater part of Europeans pass their lives in this twofold irregularity, which increases everywhere in the same proportion that wealth is accumulated in the hands of a few individuals. Society is like a garden, where shrubs cannot grow if they are overshadowed by lofty trees. But there is this wide difference between them, that the beauty of a garden may result from the admixture of a small number of forest trees, while the prosperity of a state depends on the multitude and equality of its citizens, and not on a small number of very rich men. Paul. But where is the necessity of being rich in order to marry? THE OLD MAN. IN ORDER TO PASS THROUGH LIFE IN ABUNDANCE, WITHOUT BEING OBLIGED TO WORK. PAUL. BUT WHY NOT WORK? I AM SURE I WORK HARD ENOUGH. THE OLD MAN. IN EUROPE, WORKING WITH YOUR HANDS IS CONSIDERED A DEGRADATION. IT IS COMPARED TO THE LABOR PERFORMED BY A MACHINE. THE OCCUPATION OF CULTIVATING THE EARTH IS THE MOST despised OF ALL. Even an artisan is held in a more estimation than a peasant. Paul. What? Do you mean to say that the art which furnishes food for mankind is despised in Europe? I hardly understand you. The old man. Oh, it is impossible for a person educated according to nature to form an idea of the depraved state of society. It is easy to form a precise notion of order, but not of disorder. BEAUTY, VIRTUE, HAPPINESS HAVE ALL THEIR DEFINED PROPORTIONS. DEFORMITY, VICE, AND MISERY HAVE NONE. PAUL THE RICH THEN ARE ALWAYS VERY HAPPY. THEY MEET WITH NO OBSTACLES TO THE FULFILLMENT OF THEIR WISHES, AND THEY CAN LAVISH HAPPINESS ON THOSE WHOM THEY LOVE. THE OLD MAN FAR FROM IT, MY SON. THEY ARE, FOR THE MOST PART, SATIATED WITH PLEASURE, for this very reason, that it costs them no trouble. Have you never yourself experienced how much the pleasure of repose is increased by fatigue, that of eating by hunger, or that of drinking by thirst? The pleasure also of loving and being loved is only to be acquired by innumerable privations and sacrifices. Wealth, by anticipating all their necessities, deprives its possessors of all these pleasures. To this ennui, consequent upon satiety, may also be added the pride which springs from their opulence, and which is wounded by the most trifling privation, When the greatest enjoyments have ceased to charm. The perfume of a thousand roses gives pleasure but for a moment, but the pain occasioned by a single thorn endures long after the infliction of the wound. A single evil in the midst of their pleasures is to the rich like a thorn among flowers. To the poor, on the contrary, one pleasure amidst all their troubles is a flower among a wilderness of thorns. They have a most lively enjoyment of it. The effect of everything is increased by contrast. Nature has balanced all things. Which condition, after all, do you consider preferable? To have scarcely anything to hope and everything to fear, or to have everything to hope and nothing to fear? The former condition is that of the rich, the latter, that of the poor. But either of these extremes is with difficulty supported by man whose happiness consists in a middle station of life, in union with virtue. Paul. What do you understand by virtue? The old man. To you, my son, who support your family by your labour, it need hardly be defined Virtue consists in endeavouring to do all the good we can to others, with an ultimate intention of pleasing God alone. Paul. Oh, how virtuous then is Virginia! Virtue led her to seek for riches, that she might practice benevolence. Virtue induced her to quit this island, and virtue will bring her back to it. The idea of her speedy return firing the imagination of this young man All his anxieties suddenly vanished. Virginia, he was persuaded, had not written because she would soon arrive. It took so little time to come from Europe with a fair wind. Then he enumerated the vessels which had made this passage of 4,500 leagues in less than three months, and perhaps the vessel in which Virginia had embarked might not be more than two. Shipbuilders were now so ingenious, and sailors were so expert, HE THEN TALKED TO ME OF THE ARRANGEMENTS HE INTENDED TO MAKE FOR HER RECEPTION, OF THE NEW HOUSE HE WOULD BUILD FOR HER, AND OF THE PLEASURES AND SURPRISES WHICH HE WOULD CONTRIVE FOR HER EVERY DAY, WHEN SHE WAS HIS WIFE. HIS WIFE. THE IDEA FILLED HIM WITH ecstasy. AT LEAST, MY DEAR FATHER, SAID HE, YOU SHALL THEN DO NO MORE WORK THAN YOU PLEASE. AS VIRGINIA WILL BE RICH, WE SHALL HAVE PLENTY OF NEGROES, AND THEY SHALL WORK FOR YOU. YOU SHALL ALWAYS LIVE WITH US and have no other care than to amuse yourself and be happy. And, his heart throbbing with joy, he flew to communicate these exquisite anticipations to his family. In a short time, however, these enchanting hopes were succeeded by the most cruel apprehensions. It is always the effect of violent passions to throw the soul into opposite extremes. Paul returned the next day to my dwelling, "'overwhelmed with melancholy, and said to me, "'I hear nothing from Virginia. Had she left Europe, she would have written me word of her departure. "'Ah, the reports which I have heard concerning her are but too well founded. "'Her aunt has married her to some great lord. "'She, like others, has been undone by the love of riches. "'In those books which paint women so well, "'virtue is treated but as a subject of romance.' If Virginia had been virtuous, she would never have forsaken her mother and me. I do nothing but think of her, and she has forgotten me. I am wretched, and she is diverting herself. The thought distracts me. I cannot bear myself. Would to heaven that war were declared in India, I would go there and die. My son, I answered, that courage which prompts us to court death is but the courage of a moment, and is often excited by the vain applause of men, or by the hopes of posthumous renown. There is another description of courage, rarer and more necessary, which enables us to support without witness and without applause the vexations of life. This virtue is patience. Relying for support, not upon the opinions of others, or the impulse of the passions, but upon the will of God, patience is the courage of virtue. Ah! cried he, I am then without virtue. Everything overwhelms me and drives me to despair. Equal, constant and invariable virtue, I replied, belongs not to man. In the midst of the many passions which agitate us, our reason is disordered and obscured. But there is an ever-burning lamp, at which we can rekindle its flame. And that is literature. Literature, my dear son, is the gift of heaven, a ray of that wisdom by which the universe is governed, and which man, inspired by celestial intelligence, has drawn down to earth. Like the rays of the sun, it enlightens us, it rejoices us, it warms us with a heavenly flame, and seems in some sort like the element of fire, to bend all nature to our use. By its means we are enabled to bring around us all things, all places, all men, and all times. It assists us to regulate our manners and our life. By its aid, too, our passions are calmed, vice is suppressed, and virtue encouraged by the memorable examples of great and good men which it has handed down to us, and whose time-honoured images it ever brings before our eyes. Literature is a daughter of heaven, who has descended upon earth to soften and to charm away all the evils of the human race. The greatest writers have ever appeared in the worst times, in times in which society can hardly be held together, the times of barbarism and every species of depravity. My son, literature has consoled an infinite number of men more unhappy than yourself, Xenophon, banished from his country after having saved to her ten thousand of her sons, Scipio Africanus, wearied to death by the calumnies of the Romans, Lucullus, tormented by their cabals, and Catenaed by the ingratitude of a court. The Greeks, with their never-failing ingenuity, assigned to each of the Muses a portion of the great circle of human intelligence for her especial superintendence. We ought in the same manner to give up to them the regulation of our passions, to bring them under proper restraint. Literature in this imaginative guise would thus fulfil, in relation to the powers of the soul, the same functions as the hours who yoked and conducted the chariot of the sun. Have recourse to your books then, my son. The wise who have written before our days are travellers who have preceded us in the paths of misfortune, and who stretch out a friendly hand toward us, and invite us to join in their society when we are abandoned by everything else. A good book is a good friend. Ah! cried Paul, I stood in no need of books when Virginia was here, and she had studied as little as myself, but when she looked at me and called me her friend, I could not feel unhappy. Undoubtedly, said I, There is no friend so agreeable as a mistress by whom we are beloved. There is, moreover, in woman a liveliness and gaiety, which powerfully tend to dissipate the melancholy feelings of a man. Her presence drives away the dark phantoms of imagination produced by over-reflection. Upon her countenance sits soft attraction and tender confidence. What joy is not heightened when it is shared by her? What brow is not unbent by her smiles? what anger can resist her tears. Virginia will return with more philosophy than you, and will be quite surprised to find the garden so unfinished. She who could think of its embellishments in spite of all the persecutions of her aunt, and when far from her mother and from you. The idea of Virginia's speedy return reanimated the drooping spirits of her lover, and he resumed his rural occupations, happy amidst his toils, in the reflection that they would soon find a termination so dear to the wishes of his heart. One morning, at break of day, it was the 24th of December, 1744, Paul, when he arose, perceived a white flag hoisted upon the mountain of discovery. This flag he knew to be the signal of a vessel descried at sea. He instantly flew to the town to learn if this vessel brought any tidings of Virginia, and waited there till the return of the pilot, who was gone according to custom to board the ship. The pilot did not return till the evening, when he brought the governor information that the signalled vessel was the Saint-Geran of seven hundred tons burthen, and commanded by a captain of the name of Aubin, that she was now four leagues out at sea, but would probably anchor at Port Louis the following afternoon, if the wind became fair. At present there was a calm. The pilot then handed to the governor a number of letters which the Saint-Geran had brought from France, among which was one addressed to Madame de la Tour in the handwriting of Virginia. Paul seized upon the letter, kissed it with transport, and placing it in his bosom, flew to the plantation. No sooner did he perceive from a distance the family, who were awaiting his return upon the Rock of Adieu, than he waved the letter aloft in the air, without being able to utter a word. No sooner was the seal broken than they all crowded round Madame de Tour to hear the letter read. Virginia informed her mother that she had experienced much ill-usage from her aunt, who, after having in vain urged her to a marriage against her inclination, had disinherited her, and had sent her back at a time when she would probably reach the Mauritius during the hurricane season. In vain, she added, had she endeavoured to soften her aunt by representing what she owed to her mother— and to her early habits. She was treated as a romantic girl, whose head had been turned by novels. She could now only think of the joy of again seeing and embracing her beloved family, and would have gratified her ardent desire at once, by landing in the pilot's boat, if the captain had allowed her, but that he had objected, on account of the distance, and of a heavy swell, which, notwithstanding the calm, reigned in the open sea. As soon as the letter was finished, the whole of the family, transported with joy, repeatedly exclaimed, "'Virginia is arrived!' and mistresses and servants embraced each other. Madame de La Tour said to Paul, "'My son, go and inform our neighbour of Virginia's arrival.' Domingo immediately lighted a torch of Bois-du-Ronde, and he and Paul bent their way towards my dwelling. It was about ten o'clock at night, and I was just going to extinguish my lamp and retire to rest, when I perceived, through the palisades round my cottage, a light in the woods. Soon after I heard the voice of Paul calling me. I instantly arose, and had hardly dressed myself when Paul, almost beside himself and panting for breath, sprang on my neck, crying, Come along! Come along! Virginia is arrived! Let us go to the port! The vessel will anchor at break of day! Scarcely had he uttered the words when we set off. As we were passing through the woods of the sloping mountain, and were already on the road which leads from the shattered grove to the port, I heard someone walking behind us. It proved to be a negro, and he was advancing with hasty steps. When he had reached us, I asked him whence he came, and whither he was going with such expedition. He answered, I come from that part of the island called Golden Dust and am sent to the port to inform the governor that a ship from France has anchored under the Isle of Amber. She is firing guns of distress, for the sea is very rough. Having said this, the man left us, and pursued his journey without any further delay. I then said to Paul, Let us go towards the quarter of the Golden Dust and meet Virginia there. It is not more than three leagues from hence. We accordingly bent our course towards the northern part of the island. The heat was suffocating. The moon had risen, and was surrounded by three large black circles. A frightful darkness shrouded the sky. But the frequent flashes of lightning discovered to us long rows of thick and gloomy clouds, hanging very low, and heaped together over the centre of the island, being driven in with great rapidity from the ocean, although not a breath of air was perceptible upon the land. As we walked along, we thought we heard peals of thunder. But on listening more attentively, we perceived that it was the sound of cannon at a distance, repeated by the echoes. These ominous sounds, joined to the tempestuous aspect of the heavens, made me shudder. I had little doubt of there being signals of distress from a ship in danger, In about half an hour the firing ceased, and I found the silence still more appalling than the dismal sounds which had preceded it. We hastened on without uttering a word, or daring to communicate to each other our mutual apprehensions. At midnight, by great exertion we arrived at the seashore, in that part of the island called Golden Dust. The billows were breaking against the bench with a horrible noise covering the rocks and the strand with foam of a dazzling whiteness, blended with sparks of fire. By these phosphoric gleams we distinguished, notwithstanding the darkness, a number of fishing canoes drawn up high upon the beach. At the entrance of a wood, a shorter distance from us, we saw a fire, round which a party of the inhabitants were assembled. We repaired thither, in order to rest ourselves till the morning. While we were seated near the fire, one of the standers-by related that late in the afternoon he had seen a vessel in the open sea, driven towards the island by the currents, that the night had hidden it from his view, and that two hours after sunset he had heard the firing of signal-guns of distress, but that the surf was so high that it was impossible to launch a boat to go off to her, that a short time after, he thought he perceived the glimmering of the watch-lights on board the vessel, which he feared, by its having approached so near the coast, had steered between the mainland and the little island of amber, mistaking the latter for the point of endeavour, near which vessels pass in order to gain Port Louis, and that, if this were the case, which, however, he would not take upon himself to be certain of, the ship, he thought, was in very great danger. Another islander informed us, that he had frequently crossed the channel which separated the Isle of Amber from the coast, and had sounded it, that the anchorage was very good, and that the ship would there lie as safely as in the best harbour. I would stake all I am worth upon it, said he, and if I were on board I should sleep as sound as on shore. A third bystander declared that it was impossible for the ship to enter that channel, which was scarcely navigable for a boat, he was certain, he said, that he had seen the vessel at Anchorby on the Isle of Amber, so that if the wind rose in the morning, she would either put to sea or gain the harbour. Other inhabitants gave different opinions upon this subject, which they continued to discuss in the usual desultory manner of the indolent Creoles. Paul and I observed a profound silence. We remained on this spot till break of day. BUT THE WEATHER WAS TOO HAZY TO ADMIT OF OUR DISTINGUISHING ANY OBJECT AT SEA, EVERYTHING BEING COVERED WITH FOG. ALL WE COULD descry TO SEAWARD WAS A DARK CLOUD, WHICH THEY TOLD US WAS THE ISLE OF AMBER AT THE DISTANCE OF A QUARTER OF A league FROM THE COAST. ON THIS GLOOMY DAY WE COULD ONLY DISCERN THE POINT OF LAND ON WHICH WE WERE STANDING, AND THE PEAKS OF SOME INLAND MOUNTAINS which started out occasionally from the midst of the clouds that hung around them. At about seven in the morning we heard the sound of drums in the woods. It announced the approach of the governor, Monsieur de la Bourdonnais, who soon after arrived on horseback at the head of a detachment of soldiers armed with muskets, and a crowd of islanders and negroes. He drew up his soldiers upon the beach and ordered them to make a general discharge, This was no sooner done than we perceived a glimmering light upon the water, which was instantly followed by the report of a cannon. We judged that the ship was at no great distance, and ran towards that part whence the light and sound proceeded. We now discerned through the fog the hull and yards of a large vessel. We were so near to her, that notwithstanding the tumult of the waves, we could distinctly hear the whistle of the bosun and the shouts of the sailors, who cried out three times, «Vive le roi!», this being the cry of the French in extreme danger, as well as in exuberant joy, as though they wished to call their princes to their aid, or to testify to him that they are prepared to lay down their lives in his service. As soon as the saint Geron perceived that we were near enough to render her assistance, she continued to fire guns regularly at intervals of three minutes. Monsieur de la Baudonnet caused great fires to be lighted at certain distances upon the strand, and sent to all the inhabitants of the neighbourhood in such provisions planks, cables, and empty barrels. A number of people soon arrived, accompanied by their negroes loaded with provisions and cordage, which they had brought from the plantations of golden dust, from the district of La Flaque, and from the river of the Rampart. One of the most aged of these planters, Approaching the governor, said to him, "'We have heard all night hollow noises in the mountain, in the woods. The leaves of the trees are shaken, although there is no wind. The sea-birds seek refuge upon the land. It is certain that all these signs announce a hurricane.' "'Well, my friends,' answered the governor, "'we are prepared for it, and no doubt the vessel is also.' Everything, indeed, presaged the near approach of the hurricane." The centre of the clouds in the zenith was of a dismal black, while their skirts were tinged with a copper-coloured hue. The air resounded with the cries of the tropic birds, petrels, frigate birds, and innumerable other sea-fowl, which, notwithstanding the obscurity of the atmosphere, were seen coming from every point of the horizon to seek for shelter in the island. Towards nine in the morning we heard in the direction of the ocean the most terrific noise, like the sound of thunder mingled with that of torrents rushing down the steeps of lofty mountains. A general cry was heard of, There is the hurricane! And the next moment a frightful gust of wind dispelled the fog which covered the Isle of Amber and its channel. The Saint-Geran then presented herself to our view, her deck crowded with people, her yarns and topmasts lowered down, and her flag half-mast high, "'moored by four cables at her bow and one at her stern. "'She had anchored between the Isle of Amber and the mainland, "'inside the chain of reefs which encircles the island, "'and which she had passed through in a place "'where no vessel had ever passed before. "'She presented her head to the waves "'that rolled in from the open sea, "'and as each billow rushed into the narrow strait where she lay, "'her bow lifted to such a degree as to show her keel.' and at the same moment her stern, plunging into the water, disappeared altogether from our side, as if it were swallowed up by the surges. In this position, driven by the winds and waves towards the shore, it was equally impossible for her to return by the passage through which she had made her way, or, by cutting her cables, to strand herself upon the beach, from which she was separated by sandbanks and reefs of rocks. Every billow which broke upon the coast advanced roaring to the bottom of the bay, throwing up heaps of shingle to the distance of fifty feet upon the land. Then, rushing back, laid bare its sandy bed, from which it rolled immense stones with a hoarse and dismal noise. The sea, swelled by the violence of the wind, rose higher every moment, and the whole channel between this island and the Isle of Amber was soon one vast sheet of white foam, full of yawning pits of black and deep billows. Heaps of this foam, more than six feet high, were piled up at the bottom of the bay, and the winds which swept its surface carried masses of it over the steep sea bank, scattering it upon the land to the distance of half a league. These innumerable white flakes, driven horizontally even to the very foot of the mountains, looked like snow issuing from the bosom of the ocean. The appearance of the horizon portended a lasting tempest. The sky and the water seemed blended together. Thick masses of clouds of a frightful form swept across the zenith with the swiftness of birds, while others appeared motionless as rocks. Not a single spot of blue sky could be discerned in the whole firmament, and a pale yellow gleam only lightened up all the objects of the earth, the sea, and the skies. End of part 8